and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Diana Newen, I am beside myself with excitement to be able to hear your story for She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. It's my absolute pleasure and you're an absolutely incredible woman. So uh, let's start with what's happened this week and then tell everyone what you're doing. Um, But I just think the award is so amazing. We have to at least mention it. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, last last week um, I was awarded uh, the top 40 under 40 Asian Australian most influential person (laughs) in 2021. Well, Um, how's that? That's a good snort. (laughs) Um, um, no, it was really, really lovely because I've been working in this industry for 16 years um, and just to be acknowledged and to be seen um, is really wonderful and reaffirming that I'm doing something right, hopefully. Oh, my and- God, there's no doubt about that at all. So tell everyone what you do. Um, so I'm an actor and comedian who then morphed into another kind of realm, which is creative entrepreneur. I really believe that artists are always creating their work, yes. um, but we don't know how to name it. And I'm trying to change this whole myth of the poor artist and that how we can really make money from a skill that everyone wants. So um, hence why I call myself the creative entrepreneur because I'm always creating. I'm always having new ideas, new audiences, marketing, producing, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do. They just create. And I couldn't agree with you more. I think creative entrepreneur is a brilliant name for it. And mm. I totally acknowledge that you're all in one way or another doing different types of business because um, I've had Bev Killick, which is our comedian friend that we have in common on the show, and quite a lot of other comedians because I think you are all doing business. It's just a much more exciting type of business in a lot of ways than a lot of other people are doing. And that's how we met. We met at Bev's birthday party. <laughs> I know. And on top of that, you nipped out and did a gig and then came back in the middle of the dinner, which was incredible. That's the creative entrepreneur. That's right. That's right. No flies on you. Okay. So where did it all start? Now, I, I, normally I would ask people, why did you set it up and what was your light bulb moment? Was uh, Well, I'm assuming there wasn't, but I'll just ask the question in case I'm wrong. Was there a moment when you suddenly decided, that's it, I'm going to become a, a comedian? Or has it always kind of been there? Oh, no. Um, being a comedian wasn't what I wanted to be growing up. Right. Um, it was more as an actor. So I'm a, I'm a trained actor. I went to Monash okay. University. Right. I only went into comedy, a stand-up comedy, was because um, I had run out of work as an actor and I think <laughs> um, the industry that we're in is quite limiting for Asian Australians who, who want to go. And let's and, hope that changes very yeah, soon. But what, anyway. What <laughs> um, but, yeah, I in 2015 I looked – um, on TV and thought, who are they hiring? Because at this time, reality TV was, you know, everywhere. The thing yeah. Um, we don't have the TV shows, like the long, like 20, 20 episode seasons anymore. It's like mm. people, people are either hiring um, <laughs> reality <laughs> actors or um, who are they having on their panel shows or their variety shows? And I realized that they were hiring comedians, they weren't hiring 
you know, not really yeah. anything else. So I decided, oh, all right, well, I've got to pivot and be now a stand-up comedian. And then, so in 2016 I did my first solo show called Naked, took it around Australia, took it to Edinburgh, um, and Incredible. You know, that creative entrepreneur was kind of like, well, what do I need to pivot? And so stand-up comedy was a massive pivot and it's paid off. <laughs> well done. And, and you know, even as you say that, it is almost exactly the same as any other business because you do have to just twist and turn. And I'm in- incredibly sad that we're not having more drama on television and, no- and more actors, but mm. I just – I absolutely applaud you for going into comedy because I think that would be terrifying. Oh, oh it was. <laughs> <laughs> And the other extraordinary thing about you is that I remember at that dinner saying to you, you know, are you on LinkedIn thinking no comedians are on LinkedIn, no actors are on LinkedIn? And you said yes. And I went in and had a look and went, 72,000 followers. That's just insane. So how have you done that? Why did you choose LinkedIn? Oh, oh, it wasn't really a choice. It was a friend of mine four years ago. She She's a beta tester, so she tests um, platforms. She's a geek. Okay. Yeah. So LinkedIn said, hey, can you test video on LinkedIn? Because right. there was no video on LinkedIn. LinkedIn was bought out by Microsoft for a couple of billion dollars. Yeah, just a small change. And, <laughs> yeah. and I, I get, um, it's smart that LinkedIn did that because they didn't want to restart a new social platform. They wanted to buy a new platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, LinkedIn, professional, black and white. It was as boring as batshit for so long. That's it. And, and I've only really discovered it in the last couple of years or rediscovered it because I was yes. on it in 2007 and it was just so unbearable. I couldn't be on it at all. Well, you, the only time you go into LinkedIn is to update your CV yeah. or your job. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about this video idea. Yeah, so, you know, LinkedIn had just launched video and, and video was going apeshit crazy right. um, in the algorithm. So posting a video with, what, 10,000 followers, you would get 50,000 views. It would just go viral. Yeah, yeah. And then one day I had accidentally um, flooded my mum's living space with laundry water. um, I don't even want to ask how, but anyway. Because the tube wasn't in the the hole. Oh, for the washing machine. Oh, God. So it flooded the laundry into our dining area and then I just stood there because it was my fault. What could I do to fix this? I decided to film myself dancing in the water to <laughs> and then I uploaded onto LinkedIn and it went viral. Oh um, my god. Because it was like um dancing number one. Yeah. And number two, it was failing in joy. Yes. <laughs> and, um, True. You know, instead of, you know, oh, no. I was what like, am I going to do? And drip this water all over me on a professional platform and then hence started the hashtag Dancing Diana. And so right. I dance on LinkedIn. <laughs> I have seen you dancing on the beach a couple of weeks ago, I think it was. Yes. So I love that. And I think that if you do do something that's a bit different, then LinkedIn does pull, um, pick it up. And the other thing that I love about LinkedIn, I think the moment for me was when it said there's something like 500 million people on it and only 2% of people post. And I thought, that's insane. I like posting. I'm going to go on there and see what happens. Uh, Yeah, and the the magic about LinkedIn is on your news feed, you're not just seeing the people you're connected to, but you see second and third connections. Yes. So the world becomes your news feed instead of geographically where you're from. 
So talk to me about work though. Do you get work out of this? Are you getting organizations contacting you going, oh my God, we need you to come and dance on the stage for us? Well, this is the funny bit. <laughs> um, 2019 before the pandemic hit, because I had grown such a niche community on LinkedIn, yes. um, I actually did a US little LinkedIn tour. So I went to seven oh my cities. <laughs> yeah. I went to LA, San Fran, Dallas, uh, Chicago, New York, and Toronto and danced with these people who had been following me for two years. <laughs> Wow. People who would come to the meetups. Um, and it was so wonderful because I didn't realize what I was doing. Like yeah. I was experiencing, but it was really powerful um, for me to see what I did to them, uh, which was I got these business people to trust me, to let them to be foolish and have fun. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, so that was the magic and, you know, we'll probably talk about my TED Talk, but that was the magic of making, allowing business people to have fun. Um, yes. I ended up going to Silicon Valley and went to LinkedIn headquarters um, and got a little tour and ate at their very, very well done cafeteria. The food was <laughs> amazing. Right. <laughs> I even had third servings. I couldn't. In Australia, we don't really have cafeterias. Like we don't. We didn't grow up with that. You no. Know, the ones that have good food, anyway. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and I'm, you know, my mother taught me don't waste the food. So I was in that. I just eating. And they were going, gee, that, these Australians have really big appetites. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, let's um, – and, and you've got me intrigued by the TED Talk, but I'm going to take mm-hmm. you a lot further back. So yes. can we start with where did you grow up, what size family do you have, all that mm-hmm. kind of thing, and then um, and then let's just go through your career really and, and yes. how you've ended up here. Great. Well, I did say to Jules I'll probably write a book after this. So yeah, you can. <laughs> I'll send you the transcript. You. <laughs> um, so I am Vietnamese Australian. So mum came to Australia uh, in the early 80s, uh, a refugee, uh, and then she met my dad at the Springvale Hostel. Um, oh, right. All the, all the kids uh, kind of hung out, and that's why Springvale's got his little, little Vietnamese mecca. Yes, I grew um, up in Dandenong when we moved to Australia, <laughs> and I remember it well. <laughs> Neighbours. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we, we stayed in that area, and I don't know, my mum was just, she just knew the arts was important. So by the age of three, my mum bought me a piano, and that's really rare for a refugee. Is um, it? Because I actually, and and this just goes to my ignorance and yeah. also probably cliches, but yeah. I thought that tiger mother thing for mm. Asian mums was learn an instrument, do well at school. So is it really unusual though? I feel like it was unusual. I, I feel, I, I might be corrected on it, but I just feel when you've got two kids who are refugees in their mid-20s trying to survive and they end up buying the most expensive new <laughs> yes. instrument. True. She didn't put you on a recorder, I noticed. And I was three. Golly. So tell me you're good at piano and it was worth it. Oh, I am good at piano. Okay. No longer classically trained, but I can can make music. Um, Right. So that's that's a real wonder that my mum gave me. So piano at the age of three, having lessons, and then um, I do talk about um, a particular event and so I grew up in a, a domestic violent home. Right. Um, and I, I acknowledge that 
and it was on both sides. Both my parents were uh, angry at each other, um, but they just didn't know how to articulate their anger because, you know, back in the 80s we didn't have psychologists available. No. To refugees, you know, and that was the survival mentality was I need to get through life. And there's a, there, used, there was for a long time a stigma, as we're all talking about now, around mental mm. health anyway, yes. and domestic violence wasn't something you really talked about. And then add to that being new to the country and new to the language and the culture and all the rest of it. Yeah. It must have been yeah. very frustrating for them. Yeah, my mum was like so in love with my dad and I think, you know, when you're in love, you protect your family. Yes. You protect the nucleus. Um, but to a point that the violence became too much and I remember, you know, the police would pick us up in the middle of the night and put us in women refuge homes. Oh, gosh, right. Yeah, so this is like when I was six and seven. I just remember that we were put into a police car a lot and packed our bags quickly. Oh, um, Diana. But the one time I remember was that it was uh, we had to move to a women's refuge in Cheltenham. So I grew up in Springvale, yep. which is predominantly Asian. Yes. Vietnamese. And then you went to, to Cheltenham, Cheltenham, which was predominantly white bogan. That's it. One <laughs> of two Asians in the whole school. Right. God. Um, and – and, and, and so in this transition of starting a new school, and I remember the first day I was wearing not the school uniform, so I stuck out like a sore thumb. And the kids <laughs> would tell me that I stuck out. Um, uh, I can relate not- to that because I went to a school in Berwick. We moved to Dandenong. I went to the school in Berwick and turned up in non-school uniform because I was the new girl. And we also and I also started halfway through a term. Oh. And, and it is now 38 years later and I'm still friends with those girls and they still talk about the stripy socks and the ham sandwich <laughs> I talked about that day. <laughs> yes, there you go. No, so you, you get it, just sticking I do. out. Yeah. And, um, that age, you don't realise that you want to belong. But so that that kind of sat switching on that fitting in feeling, like yeah. why am I different? I want to be part of this group. Um, so this one significant day, so we were, we were staying in a nunnery, uh, the women's <laughs> right across the road from the school. So I just had to walk 50 metres to school. Yeah. Um, but this one afternoon or morning, I remember – um, listen to classical music float into the garden. And I went to Sister Penelope and I said, what's that sound? And then she took us around the corner, me and my mum, to the community hall where the church was because it's a nunnery. Yeah. And um, there was ballet classes. Oh, so, right. Yeah, so my mum. said, so Diana, me. you know you can play piano. Now I want you to be a ballerina. Yeah. <laughs> wow. enrolled me into ballet classes and, um, the great thing was that it wasn't just like prancing around. The teacher was like a former ballerina and she competed. She's a right. competitive. So we competed all around Victoria. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So how's it, that for an, an interesting start? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, um, I'm very grateful that my mum saw that, that she. Yeah. I needed that in that time and professional. I think when you pay for classes and compete, it steps another level of artistry in yourself professionally. Absolutely. Your mum sounds amazing. Oh, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, look, they're all there sent to challenge us or mine is as well, but 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 she's good. But, yeah, but 18 months later, mum being a single mum and my parents had divorced by now, she couldn't afford ballet classes and welfare. So I was – I exited that class, uh, exited right. that ballet school. Um, and so what was next? Did you enjoy high school? 
well, the next thing I remember was singing in the school choir. I sang so loudly at church <laughs> that the teacher turned around and said, I think you need to join the choir. <laughs> <laughs> Learn to control that voice. Yes. <laughs> uh, sing with the masses. Um, but, yeah, in so, yeah, going to another Catholic school in Springwell, um, high school, uh, Cluster College, like I was in a school choir. I started to um, form a band, um, a, a, a high school band, and I was in the school productions playing the Hunchback of Notre Dame because it was a girl school, so I right. got into male roles. I was never pretty enough for Esmeralda. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been your amazing loud voice as well, I, remember? Possibly. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was very good at being grotesque um, and being physical. Oh, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you finished school. Mm. What did you do then? And, and obviously you were moving more and more into creative things. So was that straight away that you went, I want to be doing something in the arts? Well, yeah, year 12, I did drama and got ducks uh, for my year, which is unusual for um, an Asian. Yes. <laughs> You're breaking bar- barriers all over the place. So, yeah, keep going. <laughs> um, and I'm a humanities lover. So my mum just wanted a degree. And so right. I just said, all right, I'll just do a Bachelor of Arts. <laughs> and have fun. That's it. She didn't know what was in that degree, but it just knew that it was a certificate, like a safety net for me. But she didn't know that the Bachelor of Arts is not a safety net (laughs) at all. Um, But, yeah, three years doing my degree, I came out at 20 years old. Yeah. Very fresh out. That's still fresh. Um, And because Monash was so close to Springvale, I didn't really create a community at Monash. Like I kept coming back home. Home, right. My friends, like, you know, your group of friends that you still have from back in the day. Yeah. That nucleus I had was was really really strong. Um, But, yeah, it was, I remember it. It was having a fur with my drama teacher, Steve McPhail, and Fiona, um, who's a, a, another drama st- friend of mine and I've known for decades, we were having fur in Springvale and I just said to them, I was like, I don't know what to do now. Do I go and do my dip head or do I slave it and audition and then perform at night and just give this acting thing a go? And he was like, and I think he was kind of like his own journey. He was giving his advice to me of what he's learned of what he he should do yeah yeah, he said look give it a go yeah and if it fails then go and that's right oh my god I love him because I did the opposite I remember I wanted to be on the stage and my mum said make that your hobby and I was like but 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 I think I would be really good at it and she said no no there's no money to be made go and get yourself a proper job and do that you know and unfortunately that's where I went. So I'm very jealous of you as well. All right. So so what did you do? What was the what were the first few steps? Oh, I just auditioned everything, everywhere. Um, theater. It was. I'm a theater trained, so right. all theater auditions and performing late at night, juggling three casual jobs during the day, um, <laughs> just having income. Like I remember working at Nine West. I worked there for two years at Chasden, and. My mum would come in and visit. <laughs> Just and to see like, you working? Yeah, she and she would say, Well, look at look what look what you've turned out to do. Right. Shoes on people's feet. You so know. I wasn't very happy, wanted you to use that degree for better things. But oh, she's yeah, very happy now. 
She kept coming in saying, be a teacher. It's not, you know, you get a salary, you get a salary, you get a salary. It was always that kind of, like, that was successful. Because, yeah, that's what they so desperately wanted for us was the security, I guess, mm. that, that, you know, that they grew up with and yeah. that you take a great job and you stay in it for 20 years and it's all very secure and stable. Yeah. And you don't complain. <laughs> no, no, don't. But yeah, so um, so okay. So you were auditioning everywhere. Did you actually land some parts? Did she come and see you on the stage and go, "Oops, I did make a mistake." You're very good. Oh yeah, I performed. I performed everywhere. Um, La Mama. I did the Clock Theatre of Miss Saigon, and I was the only Vietnamese um, musical performer in Miss Saigon. Was, yeah, Miss Saigon. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've done independent theatre and I've done a lot of work for other people, but the work was very limited when I was given a script, um, hence uh, why I started to develop my own work and, and write my own work for 50 minutes and um, Melbourne Fringe was a great way to foster that. Right. Um, uh, but the, the – and I talked about it on the project and Peter Hellyer laughed his head off, is that um, because my mum didn't understand – what and why the arts were so important. Like she would walk out during interval. Oh God! And, and I would and I would witness it, and then I yeah. realized that after the second time, that I couldn't rely on my mum to be my network. Um, right. So I have amazing fairy godmothers and fathers who have taken care of me during the time that my mum should have been. Um, so I always credit my community for getting to me where I am. Like my teacher, Mrs. McPhail, Steve McPhail, um, I had this w- wonderful woman named Sue Lindsay who um, did these kids shows and would put me in the lead all the time and they flew me to New York to do an awesome course. Like wow. These, yeah, it was like these awesome They're really things. looking after you. Yeah. Like, and I'm very grateful for that because the moment my mum – switched was when I did Miss Saigon, it was probably, uh, what was that, five years into my career now and I never really invited my mum to see my work because I just didn't want to see her walk out again. Walk out halfway through. That's it. So she came to see Miss Saigon and I remember it, like clear as day, like we're taking the bowels and I see my mum crying. She hadn't left because Miss Saigon's a long musical. It is. It's a great one. I've seen it. I'm wondering. Yeah. I probably saw you. There you go. And she was, she was, she was crying. And I think that moment she realised why my work was so powerful because ah. she didn't need to come up on stage and do that. I, I could. Um, and, I, and that was the switch. Oh that wow! Just, yeah, yeah. And so after that, she has she been to every performance you've done since then, and, and always stayed till the end. Yes, she has. <laughs> <laughs> this is the craziest thing, and it's a tough love and culture that I've grown up. So, Mum approves of it. She said, "Like, if there's any roles, let me know. I'll love to perform." Um, <laughs> one thing she does, she stabs me, and I love her to death. But she would say, "You know, this acting stuff is good, but you know, you got to be skinny." You know? <laughs> God, yeah. there's always something, isn't there? You're not always skinny enough me. now. <laughs> <laughs> but I have cast my mum in my web series, Fee and Me, and she loved it. She loved being on set. She, like, I get it from her. 
She's, yeah. she's, she's her so, own. Well, so tell us what happened next. So I want to hear how you get to where you are now. There may be young girls listening to us who want to get into theatre yes. and they don't know how to do it. And, and one of the things that I love about um, interviewing all these people is, you know, it shows that it doesn't matter if you're not good at school or if you're the unpopular girl or mm. you're the popular one. It doesn't really matter. It, you can make your own path. So what happened to you um, to that you started your own show? Tell me, tell me some of how you started Fee and Me what that was about yeah um and why well the pandora box hope and i don't know if you know her um alice pong um, no. she, she's a prolific asian australian writer unpolished gem um growing up asian australia um maybe i do know her actually yeah she's a lawyer lawyer writer and she's got a new book that's out called 100 days um award-winning right um, in 2008 she, there was a call out from the publishers saying if you're asian australian please send in a short story about what it's like to grow up asian australia and there was like a three-day deadline and right Rushed and wrote it, and the the title of the short story is called Five Ways to Disappoint Your Vietnamese Mother." <laughs> um, sent it through to Black Inc. Uh, Black Book Inc., and then they replied saying, "We loved it." Um, and Alice emailed and said, "I loved it," and I was like, "Oh my god, okay, this resonates with people." Yes. And so that book has been studied by thousands of students um, in the Victorian English curriculum because it's part of the book assessment. Oh my god, Diana, how did you? How did that happen? Well, it's it's a it's a it's a book called Growing Up Asian Australia, and it has like thirty collections of short stories. So Tony right. Ayers in it, um, Benjamin Law is in it. Um, but because my story was quite raw, it was talking about growing up and going to school and having unsupportive mum. Kids just resonated with all oh, the yeah. parents. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sad, but I can get it completely. <laughs> That's it. Um, so just by writing a five-page short story kind of made me realise that I need to write to be in control of my story. And mm-hmm. so if that's a tip to anyone is just to write, you have to put it down onto paper because someone's going to ask you, so do you have a story? And it's like, yeah, I do. And they're like, can you read it? And you're like, oh, I don't have anything. You really have to yes. get that typewriter out, get that keyboard out. Get or get help. I mean, one of the things, because I've been teaching PR for a long time, yes. is that a lot of women don't think that they have an interesting story in the first place. So you can't yeah. get them to write it because they go, it's boring. Yes. So one of the things that I've done as part of She's the Boss is set up this product called Fig Jam, yes. which is exactly for that acronym, Fuck I'm Great, Just Ask Me, Damn. because – Women, until they see that, for most of them anyway, I think until they see their story in front of them, often written by someone else. So so the product is getting a journalist to write your story for you. Mm. But it's when they look at it and they go, who is that incredibly interesting person? It couldn't possibly be me. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I would encourage everyone to get their story down. And, and everyone who thinks their story is boring, think again. It's not. Yes. Nobody's story is boring. I haven't heard one person with a boring story yet. Well, that's, that's a problem. I find when people say their lives are boring. Mm. So what are you actually saying that it's that's the life you want to wake up to? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what are they saying about the people that are around them that love them? They're kind of going, oh, so they love a boring person. Of course they don't. They love you because you're interesting. Yeah. But, you know, you don't have to have – I mean, you have got an incredible story, so um, I can see that. But, it, you know, even people that have, you know, gone to school and ended up doing accounting and whatever, mm. there'll be things in their lives that will be fascinating to other people. Yeah. 
Anyway, I I'll think, shut up. This is about you. I think it's a great um, discussion because I feel like a lot of women and that's why I'm on LinkedIn and I feel like that's why people are attracted to me is because they're like, oh, you've got you know, personality and, you know, um, a story. And I was like, no, I've just, just got a bit of joy. Yeah, in, yeah. Um, and when you allow and understand joy and allow that to be part of your story, then every story has a transformation, like the moment you fell in love. That's right. A beautiful story or you met your puppy, you know, or. Well, there's always a childhood story as well. Everybody's got a story of a mum who either is great or terrible or whatever or a dad, but there is always childhood stories or the brother who picked on you or, you know, whatever. But, oh, I didn't even ask. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got two sisters, Princess Anne and Princess Sarah Fergie. <laughs> no. Yes. Your mum, because I, I did pick up on Diana and I went, she wouldn't have, but she did. Sarah, yes. Fergie and Anne. All three of us are princesses. <laughs> family, yes. Oh, and my God. Characteristically, we all suit every name that's been given to us. <laughs> what do you mean? I, Tell I me, like, what are the sort of potted descriptions of the three so of you then? Princess Diana is charismatic and beautiful, so of course of I course got you that are. one. <laughs> Princess Anne is quite um, traditional and, and, you know, head of the Yep. Head of the house. My sister's head of the house, even though she's younger than me. And Sarah Fergie is just wild. She's <laughs> she's doing what she wants. Um, she's in London right now. She got to London before the pandemic, like two weeks before the pandemic hit. Wow. Um, and, um, yeah, my sister works in corporate but DJs at nighttime. She's a hot little thing. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like it. Sounds like your mum has actually brought up three pretty amazing girls. <laughs> Yeah, by herself. And we by own, herself, we against the her. odds. <laughs> yes, against the odds. She made sure we all came out with degrees. It's lined up at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, love her. At least she got the, she's got those framed up at home. Okay, so, yeah, so so you were talking about how Fee and Me came about. Yeah, so um, it's the short story just made me go, okay, there's more. And then in 2010 I went to the Comedy Festival in Melbourne mm. and saw Felicity Ward's uh, performance um, and it was a very simple concept of her telling a story and a guitarist playing music three stories and it made people laugh and I was going hang on a minute we've got funny stories in our community at home and I don't see any of that being played here at the comedy festival because um, comedy is very male dominated Yes. Um, and so that's another thing to cut through into not just the acting world. I, did, I don't think I had realised that and, and that's interesting for everyone listening. Go and support female comedians because I see lots of them all the time. So I, I actually thought it was probably pretty equal but I didn't. No. I think um, who's the woman who's written the anthology? She was sitting beside me at, at Bev's um, oh, event. Jane. Jo, who wrote the book about the comedians. <laughs> Yes, and she got up and, and I went to her book launch and she got up and talked about the fact that it is so male-dominated and that's why she wanted to focus on female comedians and I didn't realise. But at least these aren't, you know, lawyer-type bastards out there <laughs> being mean. I'm presuming that male comedians are pretty fun and yes. supportive, are they? Yes. Well, I'm just letting you know um, your mic's just doing a crackling sound again. Is it? Okay. Yes. Is it doing it now? No. Yes. Just the moment you All stopped right. moving. 
So I literally can't move. That's going to be yes. an issue. All right. Um, what question? Say what you said again. Or maybe say yeah. what you said with Joanne. Which was? Um, Meeting Joanne at Bev's party. Yes. Yeah, so um, I didn't realise that there were so many, that, that um, comedy was just so male dominated until mm-hmm. I went to Joanne Brookfield's book launch for her book that she's written about female comedians. I was there. Oh, my God, in the big circus tent that was outside the art centre. And I remember her saying, you know, it's important that we have this book because it is such a male-dominated industry. And I thought I had no idea. I've sort of seen lots of female comedians, so I didn't realise it was so male-dominated. But I'm also interested because it's not like being in a law firm or being bullied in a corporate environment, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, Do you find that mostly the men are very supportive of female comedians? Um, I think it's supportive, but then I get frustrated when I look at lineup shows. So before comedy festival, you, you, there's lineup shows and open mics, and it's just really frustrating when you know there's six males to two women. Yeah, um, it's not, uh, it doesn't doesn't sit right with me, and so hence why I started Snortcast Comedy in St Kilda. Well, what's that? You didn't tell us about that. What's snortcast um, comedy? So, how long do we have? So <laughs> we have a long time. Don't worry. We've got another half an hour. Go um, for it. I'm just letting you know you're making sound again. <laughs> oh, okay. Now this is well. This is going to be no. What can I do? I don't know why it's doing it because it's not touching anything. Yeah, it's when me... you're still, you're fine. Like actually, completely. But if I still. move like this, you you can hear it. It's a bit of a little fizzing. Yeah, the first half an hour was fine, but the moment you moved your head, sorry. Got to stop laughing. How about that? Does that sound all right now? Yes. All right. Well, I'm just going to keep my head in. <laughs> I just want to save you the time later instead of. No, 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 because I've, I have to re record so yeah. many of them because of a stuff up, which I really don't want to do with you. So. Oh, yeah. good. All um, right. So Snorkast comedy lineup was a response to the lineups here in Melbourne. Right. So I have a lineup of comedians from different genders, different cultural backgrounds, different races on a lineup. Um, so it's very rare to have two Asians on a lineup. I have two Asians on the lineup because there are not one Asian. No, <laughs> I know. Yeah, and it feels like, um, and for me speaking as an Asian Australian artist, I feel like I'm always competing with another Asian artist. So I decided let's cut that bullshit and let's play together. Um, right. So that was my response uh, to start that lineup show. Right. Okay. Mm. And then back to Phil and me. Fee and me, yes. Fee and me. Go on, tell me. Get <laughs> that story out. Um, so, yeah, so seeing Felicity Ward's show, I was like, okay, we need to, we need to do something. So I went home and with my, my girlfriend, Fiona Chow. I said, let's write a story about our mums. And in 2011, we performed it. Um, and it's about a Vietnamese refugee's love for her child. Uh, um, the Herald Sun gave us four and a half stars and called it Pantomime on Crack. Oh, um, wow. Yes, we performed it all around Australia. Um, we took to Edinburgh in 2017. And it was just so wonderful because, my, and I really do speak about diversity, is that sure, you have a diverse story on stage. But when your audience reflect what the story is, then that's a that's a diverse show. Yeah, absolutely. We, we weren't performing to just white people, and theatre is a privileged 
you know, um, art. Yes. Well, yeah, not everyone can afford, especially these days, not everyone can afford to go. That's it. So when our community and, you know, we had Italian, we had Sudanese, we had people come to our show and go, oh, my God, I saw my mum. I was like, well, we did our job because um, we had, you know, found this kind of universal love story, which doesn't, isn't defined by race or culture. Um, and so, yeah, oh, being, so beautiful. Yeah. Well, one day, hopefully, we can do another stage run of it. But um, we made it into a web series, so you can just click on it. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Well, you'll have to send me the link, and we'll put it in the description so everyone can listen to it. Yes, I love um, your snorty laugh. By the way, it's just cracking me up every time. Um, okay, so. In your career, which has spanned so many things, I'm sure we've only just touched the edges, have there been some pivotal moments, so some moments where you've thought, oh, my God, this is a disaster, what am I going to do, and then looked back on it and said it was the best thing that could have happened because it made me do X or Y or, you know, I got this positive out of it. Can you tell me any stories like that? Well, definitely I think the story about, um, looking on the screen and finding out that comedians were getting more work than actors um, and that pivot of trying something so crazy, which was stand-up. Like I didn't do rooms and test out five minutes. I launched into a full 50-minute show. Oh, my God. So you didn't do the sort of open mic nights and I'll get up and, oh, my God, Diana. Yeah, and you know what happened, Jules? I had three weeks of hives. <laughs> oh, no. Like my body was in shock at what yeah. I was doing. Like I, I – I, So tell me what it was like the first night before you went on. Were you vomiting? I mean, you must have been no, so no, nervous. No vomit, a lot of sweating though. Um, right. <laughs> I, was, I was smart. Before doing the week run at Butterfly Club, um, I did a preview show in Footscray. Right. So, you know, I already knew like – we can't fail in the first first show, <laughs> and so it was a sold out show with fifty people at the Bluestone um, Church in Footscray, and I ended up talking for an hour and twenty minutes and had to cut thirty minutes from it. No. And there was deadly silence at some points, um, but luckily I was working with a director. Yeah. And um, and I had a week in between from the Footscray and the Butterfly Club season, and my director and I would just cut, 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 cut. So right. instead of doing an open mic, I did my own open mic. <laughs> right. But then what happens when you go to do your first proper show at the Butterfly Club well, and you've cut all this stuff out? Did you yes. remember all the bits? I mean, oh, oh, well, that's why it would have been so hard. No, actors are, were trained to memorise. Okay. Yes. So – um, I'm very good at remembering my whole show. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I don't don't need cue cards. I don't need a list. anything. You just remember. Just remember because I guess that's where my training has come from. The theatre training is like what moves into the next bit, so the audience go. You know, it's all movement to take them all on the journey the yeah. whole way. So when I know when the next thing to kick into the you know, in that certain point where, you know, you're two-thirds in and the audience need that little zhuzh, yep. you have to memorise that because then right. you know it too that this needs to hit another gear. So then your brain goes, what was it that I had to hit another gear? Yeah, so- okay, I've got you. So it's kind of, I mean, I do a lot of public speaking and it's a bit like that in that I put an image up 
and it's only an image, but it reminds me of what the next one's going to be that's so it. that yes. I can make it flow. Yes, that's it. It's all about flow. And I think my theatre training has really helped my stand-up because my show is not a pure stand-up show. I have a bit of music. I do a bit of dancing. Um, of course. So I, I, and I put a beautiful combination of it um, to make my shows more vibrant for me and fun for me. Um, God, I can't wait to see you. I just want to get out of <laughs> lockdown now and for you to do a show. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, that was that was 2016, and I had hives. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's happened since 2016 when you've done that show? Tell me. Well, when you're the only Vietnamese Australian female comedian, <laughs> you get a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, because I know Hung Lee, or I knew Hung Lee quite well in the past when yes. many years ago, um, and he was kind of one of the only ones as well. And then An Do came out, and yes. who's now, you know, just such a superstar. Whoever yes. knew that he was such an incredible artist? Oh, no. I really incredible. feel like that painting gig on ABC is what's – so beautiful about him. He's a creative entrepreneur. Like that's what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I love the idea of creative entrepreneur. Okay. Yeah. Um, any, any other, so yeah. So tell me what's happened since then and how are you getting through the lockdowns and constant lockdowns and COVID and all that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, 2020, um, two weeks before comedy festivals opened, we got canceled. Yes. And I think all the artists knew that this wasn't just a normal cancellation that this, and I think, you know, Melbourne Comedy Festival must have gotten advice from the government saying, yeah, this is not going to be a one-week thing. Um, and so I remember that because uh, I interviewed Bev and um, Joe Brookfield on my show the week that we went into lockdown because we all went out, went to the pub down the road for a drink and the guy said, thank you so much for coming. We, and I thought, oh, hang on, this is weird. Yes. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, artists knew this was weird. Right. Um, and so we got hit pretty hard and we were the last ones to get supported. <laughs> uh, you've hardly been supported since, I wouldn't have said. Yeah, no, it's very slow. So so what have you done, Diana? I mean, how are you getting through? Zooming? Well, yeah, 2020, um, with the cancellation of the Comedy Festival, I really had to dig deep and figure out um, what was live performance um, everything that I needed to survive and be an artist. Um, I did a lot of healing. Um, I like I worked with a sex therapist and I worked with a spiritual healer and I worked with a coach last wow. year because I decided that I couldn't live the same train that I'd been working as an artist. Like, you know, doing a show, doing a show, selling yeah. tickets. It wasn't, it wasn't sane anymore for my mental health. And, you know, I did dip down into a very dark place in April. Right. And then that's when I knew that, no, I can't sustain this. Um, so with the work of these beautiful women in healing myself um, and, you know, um, the TED Talk, uh, talking about joy. No, well, what was the TED Talk? Hang on. When did that happen? Oh, uh, the TED Talk happened February 2020. A right. Before lockdown. And this is TED, not TEDx. Uh, it's TEDx, TEDx. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Only TEDx. that I interviewed, um, I don't know if you've heard of Cindy Gallup. You might have seen her. Oh, my God, you need to go and follow okay, her. Yeah. Her out. description on LinkedIn is I blow shit up. She <laughs> created Make Love Not Porn. <laughs> yes. She's an absolutely incredible woman. I love um, it. 
But, yeah, I can't even remember what we're talking about now, but keep going. <laughs> so, um, February 2020, I did my, my TED Talk about um, joy. So it's called Joy is My Caffeine Joyful. Right. And it's the idea of doing that LinkedIn dancing. It's like why are these people dancing with me when they're professional? Yeah. And I realise that because – I was the fool in front, in the front row. They took up space from behind to give permission from themselves to be a fool, but not yeah. to be embarrassed. So, because everyone's right. attention was on me. Yeah. Um, so that was about joy and about, you know, going like how we've been talking today is like going back to your childhood and what was the joy that wasn't critiqued or wasn't told. Um, that you shouldn't be doing that? Like what was the curiosity that allowed you to open your mind and not care about what other people thought? Yeah, those beautiful me- childhood things where we don't yeah. have boundaries and, and we don't have an ego that says, oh, people are going to laugh at me. Yeah. Just and that's gorgeous. me dancing. Like I don't care how I look when I move my body, but I know that I'm really happy. Right. Yeah. So that's why Dancing Diana is successful on LinkedIn. Um, but, yeah, um, so with the joy and you know, 2020 and working with those women, I decided to create a show called The Snortcast, which you might have recognised I do snort a fair bit. Um, <laughs> it's a perfect um, laugh for a comedian, can I just yeah. say, because it just makes everyone else laugh around you. And it's perfect for LinkedIn and, and that's what happens. Uh, on LinkedIn is that because I record videos, they heard me snorting and they would comment and put a pig emoji (laughs) and I thought they were bullying me but they, a friend of mine, String, who got me onto LinkedIn, she said, no, no, they just, they're, They're just loving you. So refreshing. Yes. That so liberated in their laugh. Um, and yeah, so I during lockdown, you had the we had our nine o'clock curfews. Yeah. Um, all the comedians were locked down, so I interviewed um, thirty-five comedians during our lockdown. Uh, right. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So that has been a lovely journey and and still ongoing. Yeah. Fantastic. So where are you going next, Diana? I want to know where we're going to see you. What's the big, hairy, audacious goal for you? Well, if you haven't heard, um, The Matrix is coming out in December. (laughs) Yeah. Don't tell Um, me you're in The Matrix. Oh, no, no, I'm not. But um, I'm I'm taking my show, Chasing Keanu Reeves, um, around (laughs) Australia. So... Um, using the momentum of the Matrix, we're taking it to Perth and Adelaide and then doing a full season in Melbourne again. Have you um, reached out to him at all? No, I feel like he'll come to me. I think he will. Yes. I think he's that kind of a guy. And uh, and, oh, and I love it. Oh, my God, aren't you awesome? Okay, <laughs> so my next questions are a bit worky, but yes. they might work with you, so I'll just ask them anyway. Okay. When you are passionate about doing something or making change, which I think you are, it's very easy to work too much, I think, anyway, where you end up, you know, working, you're working, it's the whole burning the candle at both ends thing. How do you juggle work and life? What sort of hours are you working? Are you giving yourself time out? Um, I work seven days a week and probably 12 hours a Right, week. okay. <laughs> 12 hours a day. It's because um, it allows me to do what I want and also because I've got a community in the U.S. So when You've we got to do the overnight thing. U.S. is awake. So I did a 4.30 a.m. speaking gig uh, last weekend. 
<laughs> yeah. I did one in Canada at five thirty, and I remember they were all, there was a lunchtime gig for them, oh. and I was just I literally was almost speechless. I was so <laughs> it feels so surreal. I've got one next week at six thirty six, and I yeah. and I just feel like you know they're. Take it the piss, is, but anyway. Six is okay, but I understand that muteness. Like your body is just trying to catch up to what you're trying to yes. tell us through. <laughs> it's just very hard to talk at first. I feel like they have to do all the talking and I'll just grunt for the first few minutes of the conversation. <laughs> okay. Um, what is – now this is my favourite question that mm. a journalist asked, suggested to me and I ask it of everyone. Mm. Is there <laughs> – you've told me so much of – I don't know whether there is one, but is there a quirky <laughs> – fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? I love Dr. Pimple Popper. <laughs> My brother does too. That is so funny. I love it. It's I, just okay. so disgusting. It is disgusting and I have Well, explain you. what it is for anyone who's listening. Um, it's this American <laughs> um, doctor Woman. who specifically works with pimples and people, it's not just the normal acne pimple but cyst lip- lipomas. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I keep thinking of the guy, the people that have those huge ones on their heads, they're yeah. the ones that are and, and on their shoulders. Yeah, and she, she – Oh, has, I'm going to do a little vomit in my mouth actually just thinking about it now. <laughs> it's, the, it's the transformation when they turn around and say thank you oh. so much. That is what gets me. But also, if you're really stressed, just watch a pimple release and you will go. <laughs> it's like an orgasm, really. It's like- <laughs> oh, my God, you are just so funny. All right, last question. I'm trying not to move my head so the camera doesn't crack, the, the microphone doesn't crackle. Um, my last questions are literally about iPhones because, or phones because I'm obsessed with the apps on my phone. Are there any useful apps? Now, this is outside of banking email and, and social media say, are there any useful apps you have for business on your phone and do you play around with any apps for, for fun? Um, for my fun apps are all the dating apps. Oh, really? It's <laughs> because I'm single and looking for the father of my for Looking for love. Um, but I'm actually taking a break uh, from the dating apps. I think it's really hard to date in lockdowns. Um, I think it probably is. And I reckon if you do, then you're, someone will just come along. It'll be someone you bump into at the milk bar or, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm taking some time out for a situation for that, like that to happen. I guess the business app that I'm on is LinkedIn. Like I'm on yeah. there you know, two, three hours a day. Oh, right. I live on there. Well, it's it's fantastic to see you on there and I love it as well. So brilliant. Well, look, Diana, I don't even know how to say thank you for this. This has been awesome. <laughs> Tell everybody the best way to get hold of you. Well, I guess you're going to be, I'm going to say Diana Nguyen on um, LinkedIn. But yeah. if they wanted to see your shows, if they want to see Fee and me, tell, tell everyone all the details. I guess the easiest thing to follow me is on my social media. So on every platform, and this is what I did last year, I made all my my handles one handle and it's real Diana win. So you can find me all in there. The real Diana, did you say? Yes, the real one. Um, Like a famous movie star. That's it. (laughs) Or if you pop in the word the snorkast, I'm the only person who does yes <laughs> <laughs> oh you're extraordinary I cannot wait to share this I can't wait to see what you're going to do next you're going to be huge no, you, not, you. That, not that you aren't already of course but thank <laughs> you this has just been brilliant oh, thanks Jules thanks for hunting me down and eventually we could find some time <laughs> no thank you my pleasure 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.